Okay. Hey guys, good to be back. It is session 15 of the War of the Ring. As you can see, I am not at home this week. As I said, I would not be, uh, but I was able to get things together. Many thanks uh, to Matt DeForest and my friends down here at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, where I am visiting again this week. Always great to be down here again. Um, you can tell by the blank background <laughs> behind me that I am in uh, uh, in my room down here. But I got good. Uh, I've got good Wi-Fi. I've got a second screen. I'm all set to go. So we'll see how things go here this evening. Um, I had an interesting little. Uh, uh, no, I, I have the closet door closed, Yana, and uh, the angle's a little different uh, here. Uh, and the lighting is weird. I don't know if they actually painted. I don't think they painted. Or if it's just the lighting is different, so it looks kind of brownish behind me instead of gray. It looks a little bit less like cinder blocks, so that's something, I guess. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, it's kind of funny how it's almost the same shade as uh, the background of the slide here. You know, it's... Uh, uh, I'm totally blending in. Anyhow, uh, so welcome back. Anyway, so this is what we're going to do. Quick announcement first, uh, and then we're going to jump straight in because we are, I am so close to achieving my goal, and we are totally finishing the War of the Ring uh, before Mythmoot, so it should be really neat. Um, anyhow, so quick announcement. The announcement is tomorrow night is another... Um, is another uh, uh, Mythgard Movie uh, Club meeting. So the Mythgard Movie Club is going to be talking about Solo, uh, the Solo film. Uh, so uh, you'll uh, definitely want to join them for that. Those of you who are uh, uh, Star Wars fans, I really liked Solo. Got to uh, you know went to see that with uh, uh, with my sons, who are uh, far greater Star Wars scholars than I. Um, but uh, we 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 uh, we really enjoyed Solo. So. If you want to talk, uh, uh, discuss Solo, here uh, a really engaging panel of people uh, talking and debating uh, about the film and join in with that discussion. That'll be tomorrow night at 8.30. Uh, you can go to the Signum University or the Mythgard website and get uh, the link information to participate in that discussion. That'll be 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, tomorrow evening, June 14th. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the most immediate announcement, uh, what's coming up. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, good. Sure is <laughs> Fire suggesting that we get, I, I put a green screen behind me so that we can not get half the Signum banner wherever I go. Yeah, you know, we could do that or hey, I mean, goodness, if we're doing green screen, I could just project, you know, like the Lotro Rivendell behind me or something, right? You know, I mean, that'd be cool. Um, but whatever. Okay, so tonight we are uh, we are absolutely in the home stretch. We are roaring towards the goal uh, in uh, in the War of the Ring. Um, actually, before uh, I talk about that, one one other thing I wanted to say about uh, elections. I almost forgot about that. So since we are in the home stretch and coming towards the end of the War of the Ring, it is almost time uh, to choose our next book. We are in the nomination stage. We are uh, the the Council of the Wise is narrowing down our slate of finalists uh, to uh, bring to the electorate. Uh, so that will be uh, that will be very. It's always very exciting to see which book we're going to do next. Of course, we never do two books by the same author uh, in a, in uh, in a row. 
Uh, so that means our next book will be a non-Tolkien book, and that's always really the big question, which non-Tolkien book is going to be chosen uh, in the next round. So we will uh, I'll probably I'll have at least one week off, maybe two, uh, after Mythmoot before we begin uh, discussing our next book, whatever that happens to be, and I don't even know what the options are right now, so we will see. One note I wanted to... Well, okay, two. Two notes I wanted to make about it. First of all, schedule... My hope is to be able to announce our next books at Mythmoot. So uh, the uh, voting, the the general voting among the finalists um, should be happening soon. Uh, that should that should come out before too long. And then next week at Mythmoot, next weekend, uh, we will announce the uh, the winners of that election. Um, and one other clarification I wanted to make because I know there has been some confusion. Uh, in the nomination process about uh, about the next Tolkien book uh, that would that we would do uh, the, 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 non, the next non-Tolkien book has always, has been success, uh, suspenseful and often a surprise uh, and it's always interested to see that the the next book after that is rarely <laughs> a surprise as we have been uh, the electorate has been marching us steadily and dependably uh, through the history of Middle Earth series, and so uh, I'm guessing that you know um, the next book there, Sauron Defeated, has a pretty good shot uh, at winning the next election. Um, but w- one quick note about that: um, so the the box set, and I talked about this before, but I want to make a clarification. So remember, so I remember I talked about the box set of the History of Middle Earth series. Um, uh, the Return of the Shadow, the Treason of Isengard, and the War of the Ring that we're just finishing um, comes with an extra little book called The End of the Third Age. Um, and that is basically the first part of Sound Defeated, the end of the, you know, going through the epilogue and everything of the drafts of the Lord of the Rings. But it also does include some material on the appendices, which Christopher extracted from later on. Basically, he explains later that he kind of made a mistake in the sequence and he really should have talked about that earlier so he pushed that forward into the box set um, I will do that I don't want you to feel like you've got to vote for the little tiny skinny uh, end of the third age thing um, uh, just because uh, you know in, in order to get that stuff in order we'll still do that in order so if we if should Sauron defeated get elected uh, I will jump out of sequence and bring the appendix information through so that we can finish the Lord of the Rings stuff before we then move on to things like the Notion Club papers uh, in the in Sauron defeated so uh, it'll be uh, um, it'll be a little um, uh, uh, so, so again I, as I said I know there's been some confusion and uncertainty about what actually constitutes the next book technically in the history of Middle-earth sequence so uh, if you want to continue doing the history of Minora sequence, you should vote for Sauron Defeated, is what I'm saying, and then and I'll, I'll, I'll make the rest of it work. So, anyway, okay. Um, and James uh, uh, Lubeck, I have to admit, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to Morgoth's Ring, too. Morgoth's Ring is possibly my favorite. Uh, well, I should say... It has been my favorite uh, of the History of Middle-earth series. Uh, But, of course, that was before the long study we've been doing over the last several years, uh, you know, where I have, uh, you know, my eyes have been open to so much uh, in these earlier volumes that I've never gone through with this kind of care before. So, but still, it's... uh, 
it's a lot of fun. Um, so, Tony, I think the voting, the final voting hasn't happened yet. The nominations are closing very soon, though. So if you're on the, his, on the, if you're on the Council of the Wise, uh, you should make sure to submit your uh, votes for the, for the finalist, the, for the panel of finalists uh, uh, very soon. So, um, yeah, James, I, I'm, I'm not remembering off the top of my head. I think it's the appendix info from volume 12. I, I, I think that's where it ended up getting shoved. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, and Nancy, oh, oh, man, the, the, the Andreth stuff, the Athrabeth in Morgoth's ring. I mean, it's like one of my favorite things Tolkien ever wrote. I mean, forget favorite parts of the history of Middle-earth series. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I absolutely love the Athrabeth. Uh, so, so good. Anyhow, but that's, uh. That is soon. That is not yet. Right now, it is time to get back into the Return of the King uh, material. Uh, I called tonight's class Preventing Boss Battles because the the primary kind of conspiracy that we see... Of course, this is a very noticeable element, right, in the uh, the, the Gondorian battle sequences here, uh, is the care, with the, the care that uh, Tolkien takes to prevent... This sort of big, sort of dramatically logical kind of cataclysmic uh, uh, confrontations, right? Uh, we almost get it. Like, we come right to the edge of the confrontation between Gandalf and the Witch King. You know, the confrontation which we seem to be building towards, right? I mean, there seem to be spoilers in that direction. You know, Gandalf saying things like, uh, you know, against some I have not yet been measured, right? Which uh, really suggests that that's coming, right? Um, and then it looks like it's there, and here they are, and they're face-to-face, and then it doesn't happen, right? And then it never happens. Um, and similarly, so that's the, that, that's the number one uh, uh, one, of course. And, and the, uh, uh, obviously, the plan to not have Gandalf and the Witch King duke it out is not a new plan, right? I mean, Eowyn has been killing the Witch King for as long as she's been around, pretty much. Almost as long, right? She went, br- she went from very brief romantic interest uh, to Witch King Slayer very, very quickly and has been consistently, consistently the Witch King Slayer ever since. But the other confrontation that I'm thinking of here is the confrontation between Denethor and Aragorn. Um, you know, the previous Lord of Minas Tirith and the, the upstart, right, who's coming in uh, as, as the returning king. Um, and that, of course, we do get in some of the early drafts, right? We see, so this is the point at which he's sort of finally moving away from that and deciding never to have Denethor and Aragorn ever meet, right? Uh, so, um, yeah, so anyway, so this is... Um, this is something that uh, I, I think interesting. Tony says you would never get away with not having those boss battles in, in modern novels and movies. Yeah, I know it's 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 odd, right? I mean, well, not odd exactly, but it's certainly countercultural from the modern perspective, right? Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, both of these things trend in that way. So those are the, so we're going to start off tonight looking at the Witch King. Uh, kind of, we were looking at the Witch King last time. I want to. Well, sort of resolve that in as far as it gets uh, resolved. Well, leading up to the final resolution that we get in uh, uh, in the published text, uh, especially I, I mean, looking at his his death. But in looking at his death scenes and the draft of his death scenes, what it tells us about his nature and what the idea of him is, which is still really strange. Um, 
anyway, uh, strange in the sense of un, uh, uh, fluid and undefined. But anyhow, then I want to go back to Xanathar. Uh, we looked, of course, a couple classes ago at the really exciting discovery of Denethor's madness, right, and his uh, his decision to have Den- you know to explain you know why is it that Denethor. Uh, is not is a non-participant in the later sequence of events after the the battle uh, in front of Minas Tirith. Uh, answer because he is shattered uh, by the uh, near death or apparent the near mortal wounding of Faramir, um, and uh, he uh, anyways and so that that discovery of his down uh, downward spiral into madness, but yet of course that doesn't lead us to the full. Uh, the full flowering of the story of Denethor, uh, the full genius, um, and I would say genius. I mean the the spiritual and psychological insight involved in the story of Denethor, as it's articulated in the Return of the King, would be on my short list of some of the most brilliant uh, moments. Um, you know, when there are moments that I uh, if I had to list my like most uh, uh, heavily applied in daily life uh, uh, sort of portions of the Lord of the Rings, uh, the sort of the, the spiritual and psychological insights of the madness of Denethor are is very very high up there. The 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 nature of his despair, the source of his despair, the consequences of his despair. Um, there is um, uh, is is it becomes incredibly rich, right? And to, to watch this grow from a character who was essentially just being chucked in the bin, right? I mean, he was a, he was a placeholder, essentially, right? The minister had a lord, right? Boromir's dad. So he had a lord um, who was really just Boromir's dad, the dude who is in charge at Minas Tirith, but he never really had a character, like a personality exactly, uh, developed a personality, but still just kind of had to vanish because Gandalf and Aragorn are the two major figures uh, right moving forward, the two leaders of the army uh, and the, the doers of events, and so uh, yeah, and you'll remember the dis- disposing of Denethor was the very first thing that happened to him, right? When we were just gonna, we were just gonna ditch him. He was gonna die somehow, conveniently early in the battle, so we could get on with the succession, right? And that uh, was one of the places where the, um, um, where the uh, the uh, the the uh, Return of the King plotline came from. That was before the Return of the King was really the central part of the story. Anyway. Um, to see him develop from that to the you know the, the character and storyline of the the remarkable richness that he achieves uh, in the final text is pretty amazing. Um, so tonight we get to see what are essentially the final steps of that. And yeah, okay, all right, I'll talk about that more. There are a couple more things I wanted to say about that, but I'll, I'll save it for when we're looking at the slides. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to talk about something else after we talk about Denethor. What are we going to talk about? Oh, House of the Healing. Um, yeah, I, got, I have some kind of miscellaneous that I want to touch on, uh, which we'll see. We'll see if we get to my miscellaneous. If we get to my miscellaneous slides, then you'll know we're doing pretty well here tonight. Okay, um, so let us let us move forward here. Um 
First, just a little refresher. These first two are passages that we already looked at, um, but I wanted to uh, just briefly review them. Not, I'm not going to talk about everything in them again, but I want to. Uh, uh, but I want to talk. I want to focus here on the nature of the witch king. What we get uh, here, in particular, this is the first passage where we hear about him becoming Nazgul. Right, Rohirrim reach field before great gate, and men of Minas Tirith throw out enemy. But wizard king takes to air and becomes Nazgul, rallies host of Morgul, and assails king. Uh, Theoden falls from horse sorely wounded. He is saved by Mary and Eowyn, but sortie from gate does not reach them in time before Eowyn is slain. Grief and wrath of Eomir. That's what we get both of his uh, of his of his death. So the the important elements here. Death of Eowyn has been standard so far. We are, he's going to decide to save her, right? She, uh, she's going to um, uh, 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 gonna point out that she's not yet dead uh, later on. But um, he is... Uh, so that's not the sort of striking thing. Mary's role is newish here, right? But the thing that I am most interested in here is that business we started talking about last time, but we didn't get to finish the conversation um, about becoming Nazgul. But Wizard King takes to air and becomes Nazgul. Um, and I was suggesting one possible reading of that uh, is uh, one one possible reading of that is that it is just a kind of a placeholder, right? That he's sort of using it as a kind of a shorthand of his own, right? That the Nazgul, the, you know, when the ring wraiths are up in the sky on their winged steeds, uh, you know, that that's like, those are the Nazgul. And so he's acting, when he's down on the ground, he's not acting like the, because the, the other Nazgul don't come down and join him. They're still flying up in the sky, right? Doing their casting despair and gloom on the city thing. Um, you know, the, the kind of spiritual attack that they launch against the city. And uh, uh, and he he's not doing that right. He's down on the ground acting as so he's acting differently. So it's it's a way it's a shorthand way to kind of indicate his role. That's one potential reading. Um, but of course, even during the course of class last time, um, I was uh, I was losing confidence in that reading. Right, the other time we hear that vocabulary being used is in this final uh, outline thing where we get the destruction of Sauron. Gandalf knows that the ring must have reached fire. Suddenly Sauron is aware of the ring in its peril. He sees Frodo afar off. In a last desperate attempt, he turns his thought from the battle so that his men waver again and are pressed back and tries to stop Frodo. At same time, he sends Wizard King as Nazgul to the mountain. The whole plot is clear to him. He blasts the stone so that at that moment the Orthanc stone explodes. I love the 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 Destruction of the of the Palantir and the the remote destruction of uh, uh, the Orthanc stone as an attempt to kill Aragorn. That's kind of a weird moment, but whatever. That's not what I'm interested. What I am interested in is the Wizard King, who is still alive. And we saw this. Remember, this comes right after the Wizard King serving as the the, the emissary, right, to speak with him. Sauron is no longer going to come out and uh, taunt Gandalf in person and be taunted in turn. Uh, he's going to send an emissary. And we have like resurrected the Wizard King or preserved him from final destruction in order to put him in that role. I was arguing last time that this is seems to me to be another example of what we've seen Tolkien do on many other occasions, namely be willing to scrap 
you know, the guy who almost never scraps a passage of prose uh, permanently is nevertheless willing to scrap an entire plot line, right? Even one that has been central to the story practically from when that part of the story began, namely that Eowyn kills him on the battlefield. Uh, he's going to turn that around. Uh, interesting that we seem to have this one narrow window, perhaps, in which neither one of them dies, right? Eowyn or the Witch King. Uh, you know, both of them were, you know, either were slaying other uh, for the entire history of the story, and now all of a sudden both of them uh, seem to be making it, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, and by the way, Karita, I absolutely agree. Witch King is a much better name, and I I think it's funny that that keeps lingering, right? We've not seen that. We've not seen a hint of that change yet. We haven't seen even one instance of that being used in any of the drafting that we've seen so far. I'm almost surprised how long. I mean, Wizard King is good enough in the sense that it's certainly descriptive, right? It certainly, uh, you know conveys the concept, right? Uh, and we've seen how important this whole renegade member of my order thing is, is you know, has been and has been becoming in, um, in uh, you know, in Gandalf's dialogue and stuff. So I get it in everything, but I certainly agree, Karita, that uh, Witch King is much better. But the way in which it's much better is not in substance, it's in sound, right? Uh, you know, the two monosyllabic words, Witch King, uh, it's just better. It just sounds better. And, you know, I kind of have to guess that that's the... I would guess, if I had to guess, I would guess that that's the reason why Tolkien ends up making the change. I can't imagine that he ends up thinking that witch is clearer than wizard in some way. You know, that there's like a... a uh, 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 for, like for denotation reasons that it's uh, that he decides that it's a better descriptor of him. Um, I think, if anything, denotation-wise, it's kind of, it, it's sort of a confusion, but uh, but it sounds way way better, much punchier, Sharon. I I agree exactly. Um, anyway, okay, um, so. Yeah, John, I agree that one of the consequences, of course, of of which uh, uh, the, of the shift to witch from wizard is that it does distance him from Gandalf and the others a little bit. Uh, so perhaps it does also correlate with his backing off from that idea of him being a renegade member of their order. Um, and I do agree with uh, what several of you are pointing to um, that uh, witch, you know, boomful, as you're saying in the Twitch chat. Um, it does have a more malevolent kind of sound, uh, have more intrinsically malevolent implications uh, in general to modern ears. That I, I, I would, I would, I would agree with that. Um, um, yeah, Tony says it sounds kind of more mysterious, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Brian, I agree. Brian says that's a good way of saying it. Brian. Brian says there's no doubt which side a witch king would be on, right? Whereas a wizard king could kind of go either way, right? Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's uh, another good way of saying that of saying that same thing. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, so, but that was a that was a diversion. Oh right, his survival, right, and the the unexpected survival of both Eowyn and uh, the uh, the Wizard King, whom I will continue calling the Witch King, uh, uh, which I probably shouldn't, but there it is. Um, okay, but the important bit here that I wanted to to emphasize is he sends Wizard King as Nazgul to the mountain. And it's equally clear, uh, although this the statement is less explicit, Wizard King as Nazgul, oops, uh, 
as opposed to uh, takes to air and becomes Nazgul, right? Um, but nevertheless, the, 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 the correlation in both of them is very clear, right? The correlation is between when he is in the air, uh, then he is a Nazgul, right? When he is on the ground, he's the Wizard King. Um, Wizard King takes to air and become Nazgul. He sends Wizard King as Nazgul to the mountain. Um, the first instance, the word, um, I, the, the two words I would draw attention to here are the joining words, one, becomes and as, right? Becomes could mean one of a couple different things, right? It could mean transforms into, like changes into a Nazgul. Um, but becomes Nazgul, becomes is vague enough that it could be like takes on the mantle of, like is considered, like there can be, you know, you can become something without actually changing. Like you can, you can become, you know, you can, you can use the word becoming when somebody gets a title, right? You know, they're not actually physically changed example their position or their role is changed and so you can say they become uh, that um, so in that sense the word become is potentially ambiguous but but the as sends wizard king as Nazgul it's hard for me not to hear that as, uh, to hear that as as meaning in the form of sends wizard king as Nazgul so like he is transformed into the Nazgul like uh, I, it, it kind of sounds like, you know, form of a Nazgul to go to the mountain. Um, in other words, the likely, um, in my, you know, my first reading, uh, my first, you know, first sort of potential reading of that as Nazgul or becomes Nazgul thing is, again, a, a kind of uh, shorthand, right, for him to describe the winged wraiths, uh, you know, the wraiths on wings, to use Gollum's words. Um, but I, I, this combining the two really makes me question that. Um, and it really begins to sound like what is happening, potentially, what is happening is not the Wizard King, the wraith guy, right, the powerful, magical, evil commanding general figure sometimes rides on a horse and sometimes rides on a bird vulture thing right uh maybe he has a different role maybe it's a different job right when he's riding one animal as opposed to another animal but he's still the same guy doing the same thing right it's just a question of what kind of animal he's riding right um that's one way of thinking about it right but this really to me calls that into question becomes Nazgul, sends him as a Nazgul to the mountain, makes me think, no, he's actually, there's something about him that changes, uh, that he is actually becoming, um, uh, taking on the form of the Nazgul. Um, Karita, I agree. We do see, um, uh, we do see people turn into things, right? I mean, that that's a thing that happens, right? Sauron does uh, take different forms, Karita, right? We certainly see him take the form of a wolf, for instance, uh, in the Baron and Luthien story. So that whole concept is kind of out there, right? Um, it doesn't seem impossible if he is a wizard king, 
uh, and a wraith wizard king, uh, you know, in, imbued with the power and imbued with a large share of the power of Sauron at this point, um, that he could, uh, um, that he could actually change his form. So, you know, I get <laughs> several of you, three of you, are uh, saying that. Uh, so apparently, Nazgul did have wings uh, at some point. I. Uh, yeah, possibly so. Well, okay, so anyway, like, I'm not saying that these two passages prove that, but the more, you know, I read them, the more it begins to sound like maybe that's actually what's going on here. Um, let's continue forward and look at this one passage, which Christopher says is sort of isolated, right? And and he wasn't even 100% sure about where in the chronological sequence of composition it fell, right? But there's this one very remarkable version of the confrontation between Eowyn uh, and the Witch King, uh, right? Okay, this is uh, spread over two slides here. Then Theoden gave a great shout, Forth Eorlingas, and spurred Snowmane, rearing into the deeps of the great shadow. But few followed him, for his men quailed and grew sick in that ghastly shade, and many fell upon the ground. The light of his golden shield grew dim. Still he rode on, and darts flew thick about him. Many fell before his spear, and almost he had reached to the standard of the Haradoth, changed to Haradhoth, when suddenly he gave a great cry and fell. A black arrow had pierced his heart. And at the same moment Snowmane stumbled forward and lay still. The great shadow descended. Slowly the huge vulture form changed to, slowly as a settling cloud it came down, lifted its wings, and with a hoarse croaking cry, settled upon the body of the fallen king, digging in its talons and stooping its long-added neck, naked neck. Upon its back there sat a shape. Black-robed it was, and above the robe there was a steel crown, borne by no visible head, save where between crown and cloak there was a pale and deadly gleam, as it were of eyes. But Theoden was not alone. One had followed him, Eowyn, daughter of Eamond, and all had feared the light of her face, shunning her as night fowl turn from the day. Now she leapt from her horse and stood before the shadow. Her sword was in her hand. Okay, we'll come back to Eowyn being quite remarkably awesome in the second slide. But a, first th- a couple first things that we want to uh, we wanna touch on here before we, before we move forward. Um, so, uh, what do you notice here? First, the, one of the primary things that I notice, of course, in this version of the charge of Theoden, Theoden is charging solo, practically solo, right? Eowyn is behind him, but she's the only one. All of the rest of his men quail. So the, the charge of the Rohirrim is a slightly anticlimactic thing in this version, right? But I think the point there um, is not... I take this as not meaning to, to sort of reduce the impact of the Rohirrim, but rather to emphasize the impact of the Nazgul, right? The Of the Wizard King as Nazgul, right? The important is the, the power of the ghastly shade, right? Few followed him, for his men quailed and grew sick in that ghastly shade, and many fell upon the ground, right? They're just stricken down when they come, when they fly under the shadow, into the deeps of the great shadow. Theoden rides alone, alone not because he's been abandoned, but because he only has the strength to persevere through the great shadow, right? And his men 
are they're they're they, you know they fall away in fear right they're quailing they're growing sick so they're failing both physically and they're failing spiritually and emotionally right in the ghastly shade and they're falling i mean they're stricken to the ground right by the by the the great shadow and this is the great shadow not the great shadow of the darkness which has been covering everything for a couple of days but this is the shadow of the nazgul himself as becomes clear when he descends right so we have the power of the shadow that he casts, um, you know, not just the physical shadow, obviously, but this 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 very powerful uh, spiritual and emotional force um, with which he turns aside the entire charge of of what, like, I don't know, ninety nine point nine percent of the Rohiric charge, right? Um, it makes it into a highly heroic moment by Theoden, right? Um, but sets up an even more heroic moment uh, by Eowyn. Um, and yes, she is the light in the darkness. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, Arthur, she, the, she, her face is, is a light. Um, she's, uh, uh, she is, is she like Luthien? Yeah, she's kind of like Luthien, but she's, it's, it's not, I don't know, I don't see a specific reference to Luthien here necessarily. It's just, she is herself, like beating back the darkness. How the the enemies, right? The 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 Haradhoth flee from her, right? They flee from her, like shunning her as night fowl turn from the day, right? Um, they uh, that think about how unequal that you know that um, conflict is. It's not like. They're not fleeing from her like, you know, mice flee from hunting fowl, right? Uh, they are fleeing from her like, you know, owls flee from the rising of the sun. She is the sun. They are the, the little creatures that scurry away back to their burrows when the sun rises up, right? I mean, that's really remarkable. Um, and uh, uh, so, Tara, uh, yeah, Snowmane, not clear what kills Snowmane here. Um uh, at the same moment, Snow, Snowman stumbled forward and lay still. That seems um, likely that he was pierced by a black arrow, too. I don't know who shot the black arrow that pierced Theoden's heart. I'm going to go with the with the Nazgul itself, right? I mean, that... that I, I don't know. We don't know for sure, but... Um, I... Th- I, I that's what I that's what I would think um, that it's probably not just a random Haradrim arrow that took him down. Um, yeah, but um, anyway, uh, last thing: description of the beast. Slowly, the huge vulture form changed to slowly as a settling cloud. It came down, lifted its wings, and with a hoarse croaking cry settled upon the body of the fallen king, digging in its talons and stooping its long, naked neck. Upon its back there sat a shape, black-robed, steel crown, no visible head, pale and deadly gleam, as it were, of eyes between the steel crown and the cloak. So, has the black rider transformed into a bird? No, he's there riding a bird. So this, wait, so this disproves that theory, right? So he's not become the winged thing. He's riding a bird and it's like a giant vulture down to the naked neck, right? Um, it's, not, it's not sort of 
dinosaurish or lizard-like. It's 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 definitely a bird, right? It's it's like a vulture. Um, okay, um, and so this would seem to suggest that they are separate, right? We've got the separate cloaked, crowned, glowing eye, absent-headed figure, right? Uh, there on the back of the of the giant bird. But let's keep going because this is where it gets really interesting. Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, said a cold voice, or he will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured and thy shriveled mind be left naked. Which speech, of course, is almost exactly like the one in the published text, except be left naked to the, uh, before the littlest eye is what he adds in the published text. But, of course, the eye had not yet become the dominant symbol of Sauron uh, uh, really so much, so it's not surprising it's left off here. Continuing on. She stood still and did not blench. I do not fear thee, shadow, she said, nor him that devoured thee. Go back to him and report that his shadows and dwimmer lakes are powerless even to frighten women. The great bird flapped its wings and leapt into the air, leaving the king's body and falling upon her with claw and beak. Sorry, beak and claw. Like a shaft of searing light, a pale sword, cold as ice, was raised above her head. She raised her shield, and with a swift and sudden stroke smote off the bird's head. It fell, its vast wings outspread, crumpled and helpless on the earth. About Eowyn the light of day fell bright and clear. With a clamor of dismay, the hosts of Herod turned and fled, and over the ground a headless thing crawled away, snarling and sniveling, tearing at the cloak. Soon the black cloak too lay formless and still, and a long thin wail rent the air and vanished in the distance. How about that, right? You know, this is Eowyn's hour, right? I mean, nowhere... I mean... Not only does Eowyn never get more awesome than this. I mean, yikes. She, the, the, the sort of hints, right, that are given in that introduction of the night fowls fleeing before her as the dawn, right, are triumphantly fulfilled in what we see, right? She, about Eowyn the light of day fell bright and clear. The shadow uh, uh, breaks Eowyn personally, <clears throat> undoes the shadow. Right, and the entire army runs away from her. Remember, she is by herself. Theoden is dead. She and Theoden alone rode into the darkness. Theoden is dead. The rest of her army is back and and, and lying on the ground. Right, she is alone, standing in front of the entire attacking army of the Haradrim, and they turn and run from her with the death, with the sudden breaking out of the sun around her, like Joan of Arc. Right, and uh, uh, and the. Um, uh, and the death of the wizard king and everybody runs away. Um, this is absolutely incredible. Um, but, but, the wizard king, what's going on with him? So, we have a vulture creature who is clearly being ridden by a humanoid creature humanoid in that he's wearing a cloak and has a crown and eyes in the right place for human's eyes though in no visible head and that's consistent with what we've seen with the wraiths right um generally so okay it looks so this looks like you know uh, uh, in the previous slide uh the build-up to this looked exactly like 
Wraith riding on Vulture just as Wraith was riding on horse before. Then the Vulture attacks her. She decapitates the Vulture. And in decapitating the Vulture, kills him. She smote off the bird's head. Very explicit that she is cutting off the head of the steed. It fell, its vast wings outspread, crumpled and helpless on the earth. The bird, the vulture thing is dead. About a when the light of day fell, the army runs away, and over the ground a headless thing crawled away, snarling and sniveling, tearing at the cloak. Soon the black cloak, too, lay formless and still, and a long, thin wail rent the air and vanished in the distance. That is clearly the death of the Nazgul, right? Um, And I would think, I would have thought, rather, or at least I would have entertained the possibility that Eowyn didn't kill him. Right? That is to say, she kills the steed, and when she stands against the steed, the light breaks out. Right, The light of day falls bright and clear around her, and, and I, I, I might have said, well, maybe it's the light of day that kills him. Right, So maybe when the sun comes in and he's like, no, I mean, we know the sunlight doesn't kill him because he's been out in the sun before. But still, this is a you know climactic moment, and maybe it's not like normal sunlight and stuff. So you know, maybe we, you know, we, we're supposed to imagine these being smitten by... You know, I don't know who by Iluvatar by uh, Elbereth. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but again, I, I I would like theoretically entertain that reading, except he's headless, right? A headless thing crawled away. When it's so that when did when did he lose? I mean, I I can't imagine that like the light from heaven comes down and just like destroys his head, blows up his head, right? And his body is still there crawling around and snarling and sniveling, right? Though how it can snivel without a head is a little bit uncertain, but nevertheless. Um, I, I, okay, so... But he's... So he's headless. And she cut off the head of its steed. So when she cuts off the head of the bird, clearly the bird, obviously his steed, he himself is also decapitated thereby. So on the one hand... The fact that he is there, invisible, anthropomorphic wraith form, mounted on a giant bird, uh, suggests that he is not himself transforming into a bird, right? So that when he becomes the Nazgul, when he uh, he, uh, uh, is uh, sent as a Nazgul to Mount Doom, uh, he is not like transforming his shape into a bird. He's mounting a bird. And yet, he is becoming that bird. Right? There's some, obviously, some kind of connection, but this is not just his steed. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I suspect if they had, you know, I don't know what lamed one of the horses of the Black Riders, that that Black Rider would have walked with a limp from from then afterwards. Like, I don't think that's the case, right? Um, We are giving no um, reason to suspect that that's the case. Um, So, uh, 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 Legal Action, which is a very ominous Twitch name, by the way, um, is, uh, uh, is asking, if he's invisible without the cloak, how do we know his head is severed and not invisible? The narrator tells us that he's headless, and I... 
this is not headless in the same sense. Let's let's look back a second here, right? Um, above the robe there was a steel crown borne by no visible head, save where between crown and cloak there was a pale and deadly gleam, as it were, of eyes. Um, I guess con- you could read that conceivably as uh, like it's has an invisible head, like the the thing with its invisible head went crawling away. Um, but uh, and it could be just a coincidence that it was called headless right after the bird got its head cut off. But it is acting as if it has been mortally wounded, right? How? How? If it's just riding, if the steed, if the bird is nothing but a steed, right? It's, how's it even going to be injured by that? I mean, unless it damages itself in the fall to the ground, which would be anticlimactic, and, of course, doesn't happen. Um, It's clear in the published text, the bird is just a steed. Right. This issue that we're trying to tease out here, we know is going to go away. So on the one hand, you know, it's kind of immaterial, I suppose. Um, But it's really interesting to think about this as a sort of a transitional state and trying to understand what Tolkien's concept was at this time. Um, uh, Yeah. um, So. uh, Anyway, so but, but yeah, he's he's mortally wounded. By what? Again, I don't really buy. It only can be one of two things. Either Eowyn's blow, which decapitated the bird and has left it, at the very least, apparently headless. Um, But again, notice uh, legal action. This is my main issue. Yes, his head is invisible before, but we are drawn, our attention is drawn to his. His head is the primary thing that's emphasized, right? So he is not, he is emphatically not headless in the early description. His head is not visible, but his head is the central point of his discussion. He's got a cloak, he's got the crown, he's got the eyes, right? So you you can't see the head that's around the eyes and under the helm, the, the helmet, under the crown and above the cloak, right? But if there's one if there's one thing that he plainly has, it's a head, right? And so when the narrator then calls him headless, I can't see that as merely, this is the narrator saying the same thing that he said in the last description, right? Um, Especially given that he is not only acting like a dude who's in discomfort and has an invisible head, uh, this is a dude who is in the death throes. This is in, he's in his mortal agonies here. Um, He's crawling away, tearing at the cloak, um, it lies formless and still. The wraith vanishes. He goes. It's gone. Um, and a long, thin wail rent the air and vanished into the distance. Um, I, uh, um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm, for some reason, I'm not getting the name of the person who made this comment, but uh, um, it's like he's connected to his steed in a similar way as Sauron to the ring. Almost, yeah, or even closer than that, but yes that that does seem to be the kind of uh uh the kind of parallel here um Stephen uh asks is the giant bird a physical form given to the wraith's nothingness so he can project an image of himself or something yeah i don't know um uh, it almost also makes me think as uh, 
it's obviously it's not the same kind of situation, but it's almost like a it's almost like a phylactery, right? About those stories, those stories about someone you know sort of taking their life and putting it into uh, into something else. Um, I don't think that's a different thing actually from saying that it's like Sauron in the Ring, really. Um, but um, see, Jennifer was saying she thought it was the bird that was claw- that the bird was the headless thing that was clawing that was tearing at the cloak and thus killing the wraith. And that I can't imagine either. Uh, that it gets rent to pieces by in the by the death throes of its birdly steed would be highly anticlimactic. Uh, not necessarily impossible for that reason. Um, but... It's possible. A headless thing crawled away, that that could be the corpse of the bird. I don't know. That 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 he's calling that that which he called the bird he's now just calling the thing right conceivably you could say like without a head it's not a bird anymore it's just a thing that's not impossible Uh, but uh, but I'm not really convinced by it Tony says the bird is a horcrux yeah, essentially something like that, or rather the same kind of concept that J.K. Rowling was drawing on uh, in making the Horcruxes, yeah. Um, yeah, Marilyn, I don't understand why the Wraith, if it's, if the Wraith is the headless thing crawling away, why is he uh, uh, tearing at the cloak? Um, I don't know why he's tearing at the cloak. Um, is he trying to uncloak himself, right? Is he trying to is he trying desperately to leave this form in which he's dying? I don't know. I don't know. James, I don't know how a headless thing either snarls or snivels, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, I would think that either one of them would uh, require, um, you know, a... a, a, <laughs> a, a, a you know, a, a throat. Uh, and a, well, it has a throat, I guess. Um, but anyway, um, I don't really know how exactly. You, so what what the mechanics are? We get so little evidence here; it's hard to draw really firm conclusions. Uh, what the mechanics exactly are, I don't know. Um, but I suspect that whatever this, whatever's going on here with the the birdly steed. Uh, and the Witch King here, or excuse me, Wizard King, is part of this whole moment, this becoming a Nazgul thing. Um, that the, Again, this is not just about, and now I need to switch mounts, um, but, but rather that he is, that the Nazgul are tied to their steeds, that there's some kind of, uh, you know, metaphysical connection between the, the, the Nazgul and their steeds, that their steeds are not only... Um, a means of locomotion for the wraith itself, but are become their instrument. Just as, and I think, you know, going back to Sauron and the Ring, right? Just as Sauron has imbued the Nazgul with his own, uh, with his own power, so they have imbued the, um, their steeds with their power. Maybe the steeds are not a transformation of themselves, but a projection of their own power. Um, you know, maybe there is no 
actual bird. Like maybe there's no, so we don't get a backstory of a of a species of giant vultures who have been fed fell meats by the hand of Sauron until they grew of monstrous size, and he raised them to, and you know, gave them to the wizard king to be his steed. Um, uh, maybe it doesn't have that. You know, may, that is to say, maybe maybe that kind of concept is not at all in the ballpark. Maybe what we have is just the wraith conjures, creates uh, a bird form as an extension of himself and as a as a vehicle for conveying his this shadow, this great shadow, this spiritual assault, uh, which by the Wizard King lays low almost the entire Rohiric charge here at the beginning of the battle in this version. Um, and therefore uh, um, and therefore the um, decapitation of the bird, right, of that form, which is like his own, invested with his own power. And I, I would think, by the way, that that's also why it's the bird who attacks Eowyn, right? Um, that in this version, when his mount, you know, leaps upon Eowyn, this is not like, I'm not even going to bother with you, I'm just going to have the bird mop you up. He's attacking her, right? This is a direct assault by him, by his power, right, as kind of projected through or into this bird um, or bird shape and he's attacking her and so when she decapitates it it's his own power it's himself ultimately you know in this kind of deeper spiritual sense like Sauron losing the ring um, that he gets him that he himself is decapitated and he loses his wraith form and his clo- and his cloak uh, uh, falls formless and still uh, and he goes wailing off into the distance um I don't know. It's really it's 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 this brief moment, right? And it might not, you know, one might say it's not worth the amount of time that we're giving to it here. But it's really interesting. I find it uh, I find it a really fascinating concept, especially as a as a data point in trying to understand sort of the developing, I don't know, sort of spiritual and metaphysical dynamics of Tolkien's world. You know, I think back to me, this is kind of connected in a sense with understanding Tolkien's developing thought about stuff like you know the spirits of the landscape and Goldberry right and Tom Bombadil and um, uh, and even things conceivably like the watcher in the water and uh, the, you know I trying to kind of fit all of these things in and try to understand both kind of where Tolkien's mindset is coming and understanding these um uh, spirit forms and and uh, these creatures whose connection with the physical world is non-linear, you know, is not really simple. Uh, and to see where that goes, and then and then to be can, to be sort of looking at how how that is, um, you know, where these things are in Tolkien's thought early on. Um, and this is of course not even particularly early, right? Um, and then to see how that's changing and and. Um, and, and developing as he's getting closer to the published text and seeing some of the changes where he, uh, 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 you know, where he really departs from it more completely. Um, but uh, anyway, that's it's so this is why I'm so interested in this, not because, of course, it really it doesn't unlike some of these other things, it doesn't change necessarily our reading of the published text. Right. It's very clear 
that whatever this connection is, he leaves it, right? When the, uh, when the fell beast attacks Eowyn and gets decapitated, the Witch King is totally uninjured by that. He is undeterred. He's annoyed, right? But he is otherwise uh, undamaged and unfazed uh, by the destruction of his steed, as far as we can see in the published text. So, and we do get that backstory of Sauron nurturing these fell beasts, uh, uh, you know, in order to raise them up as winged steeds uh, uh, for his servants. So um, it's clear that he shifts the steeds of the Nazgul to um, to be uh, much more, just mundane in a sense, right? And to have a mundane backstory. Uh, but it's a fascinating little glimpse into kind of how Tolkien's mind works and, and, and the kind of, I don't know, sort of deeper matrix of Middle Earth to uh, uh, to, to try to pe- to figure out what was this idea that he was uh, that he was flirting with here. Okay. Anyway, so that's my own fascination. Plus, dang, right? I mean, does Eowyn get a moment, or does Eowyn get a moment? I mean, you thought her moment in the published text was awesome. Um, uh, and by, uh, this got kind of lost in the discussion of the wraith, but I, I and so I missed, I, I forget that is who said this earlier on, but uh, I do love her, uh, her response. I do not fear thee, nor him that devoured thee. That is a sick burn right there, right? Uh, I don't fear, I don't fear thee, shadow, nor him that devoured thee is an awesome, awesome opening line uh, by, uh, um, by Eowyn. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's keep going. This comes much later. This is in the context of the Houses of the Healing chapter, um, but about about uh, sort of Gandalf's realization. Finally, uh, so the 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 major development that we get right, we got the Witch King who was always going to be killed by Eowyn, and Eowyn was going to die, and then we had the Witch King briefly. Uh, given a respite so that he could be there to negotiate at the Black Gate uh, and possibly to go and try to save the ring uh, at Mount Doom uh, as a Nazgul as we were seeing. Then we have, of course, the brief moment where both of them, uh, you know, where both of them seem to be living. Eowyn was, uh, was, is now surviving. He's decided that Eowyn is going to survive but be grievously injured. Um, but he still hadn't finally resolved... Uh, the prophetic element, right? We saw him trying to refine that. Um, and it's finally here in the Houses of Healing, as Gandalf is reflecting on what has occurred uh, and talking about it, that we get the full articulation of the prophecy. Uh, and so they went in, and as they passed towards the rooms where the sick were tended, Gandalf told of the deeds of Eowyn and Meriadoc. For, he said, long have I stood by them, and at first they spoke much in their sleep, dreaming, before they sank into a yet deeper darkness. Also it is given to me to see many things afar off. And when there came a something cry from the fields, I was near to the walls and looked out. And even as I did, the doom long foretold came to pass, though in a manner that had been hidden from me. Not by the hand of man was the lord of the Nazgul doomed to fall, and in that doom placed his trust. But he was felled by a woman, and with the aid of a halfling, and I heard the fading of his last cry, borne away by the wind. Uh, this is uh, um, uh, this is the, um, the 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 full Macduff, as I call it, right? You know, so here we get his the the prophecy had been kind of moving in this direction. Um, but we get the final element in which he's much more actively um, he's much more actively 
following the pattern of the of the Shakespeare prophecy of uh, of the Mac, the Macbeth prophecy, not only in the uh, you know not by the hand of man shall he be slain, which more closely uh, recalls so, uh, the the uh, the wording of the Macbeth prophecy of the, the prophecy in Macbeth about Macduff. Um, uh, but anyway, it's not just that, of course. To me, the most important element and the element that had been almost entirely missing uh, uh, earlier on is, and in that doom placed his trust, right? That, of course, is the really the critical element of the Macbeth prophecy. It's not just that, you know, there's like the clever thing about, you know, no man born of woman shall kill Macbeth, um, but that he trusts in that, right? He believes himself to be unkillable and so he's not afraid as he's fighting in battle because he you know no man born of woman can kill me right uh so the false confidence that is drawn from his misunderstanding of the prophecy right or his limited uh uh kind of investment uh in the prophecy um but is uh uh this now finally comes into force so we see the uh, the Wizard King's downfall, uh, you know, it has, it, it gets sort of more of that kind of Shakespearean arc, uh, and we see his overconfidence, which invests the confrontation between him and um, Eowyn with, uh, uh, you know, a different kind of force than we saw it have uh, in the earlier versions. Okay, all right, let's move on to Denethor, finally. Here's the first outline of the uh, Pyre of Denethor. Porter dead at closed door? They see fire and smoke below as they hurry down the winding road. Berethil has rebelled. This is, of course, the guy who shall be named Baragond. Berethil has rebelled and, taking some of the guard, has fought with the household men. Before they could gain entrance to the tomb, one of these dashed back and set a torch in the wood. But Berethil was just in time to save Faramir. But Denethor leaped back into the flames and was now dead. Gandalf closed the door. That ends a chapter, he said. Let the stewards burn. Their days are over. Ouch. <laughs> Light is growing fast. Faramir is born away in the house where women who were remained, who were, oh, sorry. Born away in the house where women were who remained in the city to tend sick. Okay. So, whew. All right. Uh, that was quick. Right? So the, his first thought was to have it all happen off stage, right? So when Pippin and Gandalf get up to the top, you know, it get to the, it's over, right? Like the, the, how the, the it's on fire. Barathil's already saved Faramir for him, and so he's just like, well, oh, so ends the uh, so ends the days of the steward. Good riddance. Uh, yeah, and it is cold, isn't it, Karina? It's wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, several of you are really outraged uh, by Gandalf's comments here. The one defense I would offer uh, for Gandalf here is that this is just an outline, right? So presumably he would not be quite so brusque uh, in the full text. Um, uh, let the stewards burn, though. I mean, it's hard to get around that, right? It's, uh, the stewards were a bloody nuisance anyway. Uh, so, whew. Ah, right. Um, 
Yeah, no tears shed for Denethor by Gandalf, apparently, in this version. Um, so, yeah, that's very striking. Um, uh, however, um, even more striking that this happens off stage. So, in other words, what do we not have? So, when, when he writes this... Um, he's already made his discovery of the madness of Denethor, obviously, right? Denethor has gone mad, and he's he's been, you know, emotionally shattered by the near death of Faramir, and uh, and we see that the the form in which this takes, which is his uh, decision to commit suicide, and you know, this sort of double suicide, or like him committing suicide, and then Faramir vicariously committing, or like committing suicide by proxy. He wouldn't think of it as murder, right? It's like suicide by proxy, or however it is, but whatever. Um, uh, so, um, uh, this is this is just the culmination of that, right? So he's already discovered Denethor's madness. What is the final end point of Denethor's madness? suicide and self-immolation right so that's uh and so that works right that's still true what has not yet emerged you know what this demonstrates very clearly is that none of the rest of it had emerged right um the full nature of Denethor's madness he's got that it's the madness right that is what you know Denethor goes mad and dies and that's what keeps him out of the later action right this is how this is why and how Denethor Denethor disappears he's got that but he doesn't yet understand the full nature of that madness right now he's still just mad in a relatively mundane way right that is it's it's all about his own harshness to his despair about the situation, but much more his um, his self-loathing, right from his uh, uh, from his treatment, his harsh treatment of Faramir, uh, his his the 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 shattering guilt, his blaming of himself for the death of his son and the end of his line, uh, and all of those things, right? Um, so. And, uh, and yeah, Terra, there is still no evidence of the Palantir yet. There was no evidence of the Palantir before, and there's still no evidence of the Palantir. That element not has not yet entered. So the will of the Dark Lord has not entered into the White Tower, right? Um, Denethor is a horrible jerk to his son, right? And... Uh, in the enormous remorse that he feels for that when he believes that he has caused the death of Faramir, he breaks and snaps and destroys himself. That seems to be the entirety of the story from there. Now, Rachel and Tony make a really good point um, that Gandalf often starts off super harsh and gets dialed back, as Tony says, and Rachel says that Gandalf often seems... Uh, really harsh in the outlines. Um, Rachel, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the trend does seem to be when we've seen, of course, many times those moments when he's writing an outline, when Tolkien's writing an outline and little bits of dialogue come bubbling in, right? Those appear. Rachel, doesn't it seem like when Gandalf dialogue comes in, it's always Gandalf's harsh declarations, right? The th- either when he's saying scathing things to the hobbits or like that you know that the, the the most abrasive um uh parts of Gandalf's dialogue those are the things that kind of bubble up first it seems the unfiltered Gandalf James exactly um uh yeah um so uh so anyhow yeah that's um uh that's 
it seems to be one of the things kind of in play here. I do suspect that even if he had stuck with this as a plot outline, uh, Gandalf would probably not have used exactly those words, uh, unqualified uh, in the in, in the final text. Now, Terry, you're right that the uh, although the Palantir is not that no Palantir has been associated uh, with Denethor or Minas Tirith so far. There have been there has been plenty of Palantir action lately, right? And that's uh, been a really important element of the story. You'll recall that Aragorn was all about the Palantiri, like his whole movement through the paths of the dead. Like, so remember, he looks in the Palantir of Orthanc uh, before he sets out, and he says, "All right, so." Uh, I had a little talk with Sauron, right? Showed him my sword and everything. That was cool. But then I used it and I discovered some things. And Terry will remember uh, the thing that he he discovers primarily is there are other Palantir. There are other stones, right? There's one at Erech and I'm going to find it, right? Uh, So the fact of the other Palantir, that there are other Palantir, you know, on the loose, right? And that they're super important in some way. That's already been established, right? Though in the end, that doesn't seem to have gone anywhere yet. He hasn't done anything with that idea, even though that idea was there. And then, of course, we have the Palantiri associated with uh, cause of death, right? Already on several occasions from the poor guy that Gandalf brains with the one in that earlier draft to the exploding Palantir, which would have killed Aragorn had he been so unfortunate enough as to look at it. Uh, be looking at it when it blew, uh, at which point I suppose it would have like what blown off his hand and uh, and shattered into his face. I mean, it's kind of gruesome to imagine uh, Aragorn dying that way. But anyhow, um, uh, though, though Tolkien has kind of invited us to imagine that. Um, uh, so Tara, I agree. The 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 role, the sort of the importance of the Palantir for the for the of the Palantiri in general for the story has been really high. So it's of course very far from shocking that he should come around and decide that this is the place in the end uh, where another Palantir is going to come in and be important to the story, though not in the way that Aragorn seems to suggest. And certainly no one no one's going to have a Palantir cause their death exactly. Um, but. Uh, Anyhow, so, uh, but but it's still not there yet. It seems to enter here. So here's the next outline for the Pyre of Denethor chapter. Berethil and Gard had gone and stuff. This is, this is his replace. So he, he, he's immediately pitched that earlier one, and he's replaced the first bit. Berethil and Gard had gone and stopped the burning. Gandalf reasons with Denethor. I have seen, says Denethor, ships coming up Anduin. I will no more yield to an upstart. And even if his claim be true of the younger line, I am steward for the, for the sons of Inari and not Isildur, then to my dark foe. Hang on, I'll do that again because the syntax is really confusing. So he is saying, I will no more yield to an upstart than to my dark foe. But then he interrupts that thought in the middle with the interjection, and even if his claim be true of the younger line, I am steward for the sons of Inari and not of Isildur. Okay, so now... At least one new element is being introduced, right? Gandalf gets to talk to Denethor, and in talking to Denethor, uh, prior to Denethor's self-immolation, we get this important element of his knowledge of Aragorn, right? I know that Aragorn, I know that the, the king is returning, and I don't care. I would not submit to him. I don't want the king to come back. Um, 
I would no more yield to an upstart than to my dark foe. To Denethor, either way is equally bad. Now, uh, the question is, how does this fit into... Oh, but, oh good question. Stephen says, is Guard a single person or a unit under his command? I assume the latter, uh, Stephen, based on the previous outline. Um, Berthel had rebelled and taking some of the guard has fought with the household men. They're clearly plural there. Uh, so I assume that they're plural here. It's not Berthel and some other red shirt guard uh, singular who have gone. Um, Berthel, and he's brought a, a crew with him, right? Anyway, so the other element that has entered into the story of the madness of Denethor, it's not just I'm kind of generally pessimistic and think we're all going to die combined with I've now caused the death of my son and the end of my and I've got nothing more to live for so I'm going to kill myself. That was where he was at the end of, you know, where, where we kind of left him and where he seems to have been still in the previous slide. Now we get this new thing, right? I know about Aragorn and I don't want him to come. Um, Rachel says, does he know that Aragorn is on the ships? This is the big question, right? Um, the other potential thing that comes in here is I have seen ships coming up Anduin. And on a related subject, I will no more yield to an upstart. The implication does seem to be, Christopher says that he, you know, although it's not stated explicitly, that he believes that this means that Denethor uh, has seen that it is Aragorn who is sailing the ships up the Anduin. Um, in other words, he is not despairing because he believes that the ships are full of Corsairs coming to destroy the city. He is despairing in a sense because he knows the eucatastrophe that's coming, and that's what he hates, right? He refuses to yield uh, to Aragorn. Uh, and so that is seems to be one of the things which is ultimately increasing his despair, right? Uh, increasing his own resolution to, uh, 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 to die. Um, Brian, I agree. Denethor's attitude has an interesting parallel back to the early outlines where Aragorn and Boromir were going to contest uh, for the loyalty of Gondor. Yeah, we do see an element kind of like that again, right? Or rather, Brian, I guess in, in a sense it's like that story as like... Or, Brian, to put it in a, another way, it's like Denethor has read those early drafts and he doesn't want any part of that, right? He, he doesn't want to be, he's like, don't you make me the early Boromir figure, right? I'm not going to be competing with you in a popularity contest, Mr. Upstart. I'm king of Minas Tirith, right? I'm not going to lose my place to you and then, you know, go into, like, no way, man. Like, I'm out, right? I'm just going to not even go there. Um, uh, but so in, in that sense, I think, Brian, we can see um, Denethor kind of anticipating exactly that sort of situation which had been so central to the initial story of Minas Tirith as Tolkien had conceived it. Um, Christopher also is suggesting that his seeing not only the ships coming up Anduin but also knowing that Aragorn is on them um, you know that this is uh, <clears throat> that this is evidence that the Palantir is already now beginning to lurk in the background, that it's uh, that that concept of Denethor using a Palantir, that this is the first evidence that that has come in. And that seems to me very likely. It's hard to see how else he would know not only that there were ships coming, um, but that <clears throat> but that uh, Aragorn is the one who's, who's on them uh, and coming up. And why, if he knows that the coming of ships is a good thing from military perspective uh, why it is that he doesn't seem happy about it. 
Um, but it seems to me extremely important that um, Denethor, the element that's missing here still, <clears throat> is Denethor's despair because of his confidence in his misinformation. Denethor's sight that he gets from the Palantir is correct at first, right? He knows it's Aragorn coming. Um, and I think that this is a crucial, crucial element. I think... I don't think this is one of those places where I'm saying that I think Christopher Tolkien is wrong. It's not exactly a right or wrong thing. I guess the way that I would say it is I think I put much more stress on this. Um, Tolkien, Christopher Tolkien, in his commentary on this, not only this passage, but on the passages to come, uh, seems to me to treat this difference, that is, Denethor knowing that the ships are coming and knowing that Aragorn's in them, or knowing that the ships are coming and not knowing that Aragorn is in them. Um, he seem, Christopher seems to treat this as like not a like, you know, it's it's kind of a detail, you know, it's it's sort of uh, not a um, not an obviously important difference. In my view, it's a massively important difference. When I ask, you know, that question that I keep asking, like, how is the story changing? How is the core of the story changing? To me, the core of the story is radically different, radically different between him thinking it's Aragorn coming and resisting the 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 ascension of the king and his drawing the conclusion of despair because he thinks he knows the final end beyond all doubt, which they don't. Um, I think that the story of Denethor's despair and death is radically altered by that difference. And that, to me, that's the final evolution of Denethor's story. Um, not that he has a palantir and can see these things and draws the prideful, arrogant, uh, sort of self-centered, holding on to yesteryear, not wanting to change, resisting, giving up power, all of those elements that we see... Um, the final evolution is when we get that extremely subtle Sauron allows the Palantir to show him things that are real but his own will is corrupted such that he misinterprets the significance of those things that he sees right um, and that I think is where the real genius of Denethor's like the description of Denethor's condition, where Denethor becomes not just, uh, you know, not just a madman, not just a, well, I was about to say villain, that's a little harsh, um, not merely culpable, but tragic, horribly tragic, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Tony, I agree that it is almost like the Palantir is the answer to the question, how did he know about Aragorn, right? Um, and that's the thing that's going to grow, right? Instead of just having that... Instead of having the Palantir just be the way in which he has gained news and, you know, the the sort of... 
uh, destructive conclusions and bad choices he has made in as a result of this information that he has that he has gathered, the way that it becomes an instrument of corruption. In a, in that much more fascinating, much more subtle way, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and Stephen, I agree that when he refuses the king, there's another level of tragedy and that he's utterly failing in his duty as a steward, absolutely. Like when Frodo claims the ring. Yeah, no, um, yeah, no, Stephen, that, that's a really good point, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to make like this is shallow or, or dumb in comparison. This does add another level, right? So we had the, he is emotionally shattered by the near death of Faramir and his blaming of himself. Like that level, he already arrived there, right? This is adding another layer on top. The whole, I don't want to let go. I'm going to be, tragically in the end, I'm going to, I'm going to be a bad steward. And Stephen, I think that parallel with Frodo taking the ring to the cracks of doom and then not casting it in, that's an interesting parallel to Denethor here, right? That kind of failure. But, um, my point is just there's another layer on top that's still going to come and it's emphatically not, if he knows it's Aragorn in the ships it's emphatically not there yet and it's more than just a, a, a point of curiosity to me it, 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 it adds another layer and really transforms the whole story and picture of Denethor um, in I think a very profound way um, and let's, let's, let's see some more of this Okay, Gandalf and Pippin here, clash of arms as they hasten down. So this is now, we're done with outlines. This is the more, uh, uh, this is, okay, no, this is another outline, but uh, but still, we're, we're refining as we're moving forward here. Gandalf and Pippin here, clash of arms as they hasten down the winding road to Rathdenan. When they reach the tombs, they find Barathil holding the door alone against the household men who wish to obey Denethor's orders and come and set fire to the pyre. Uh, so, um... Uh, uh, Stephen, he looks like he's ditched his posse, right? It's just, he's all, he's all by himself now. Uh, from within comes Denethor's commanding voice, his voice commanding Barathil by his oaths to let them enter. Gandalf sweeps aside the men and goes in. He upbraids Denethor, but Denethor laughs at him. Denethor has a palantir. Now explicitly it's there. He has seen the coming of Aragorn, but he has also seen the vast forces still gathered in Mordor and says that victory in arms is no longer possible. He will not yield up the stewardship to an upstart of the younger line. I am steward of the sons of Anarion. He wants things to be as they were or not at all um okay so this i don't think is a a serious development from the previous text um that is we see here more clearly articulated those same things that we were looking at before right um so we have the revelation of sort of the final you know to this point, final layer of his uh, madness and motivations uh, for his suicide, his knowledge. Uh, and, and, and here we have that sort of paradox, right? And I, I want to say this is totally uninteresting. I, I feel like I'm kind of uh, downplaying it. Uh, there's still something cool about saying, you know, having the final element of uh, his tragedy, of his fall, <clears throat> be that he knows the eucatastrophe that's coming and rejects it. Right, that's kind of fun in its own way. Still not as cool as what ends up happening, but but still kind of cool. Um, and he will not yield up the uh, the stewardship. So there we see him making his final choice, and in in essence, his self immolation simply becomes a manifestation of that, or like a, the logical conclusion of that choice. 
right? Um, I will not yield the stewardship to an upstart of the younger line. Notice, notice what's implied there. That is, he knows that Aragorn's coming. His conclusion, or rather, his uh, like the uh, the action point from that, right? The action plan that he comes up with, having made that observation, is not, I'm going to resist him, right? I'm going to rally the people and say, reject the, you know, this idiot, you know, uh, upstart uh, loser would want to be king, right? He doesn't try to uh, win the popularity contest that is coming, uh, Brian, as you were recalling. Uh, he just says, okay, in a sense, like, I know I'm wrong, right? I know everyone's going to accept him. I know he's going to come back and be king. I realize he's going to win and I'm going to lose if I try to resist him. Um, so I'm just taking my ball and going home, right? I'm just going to, I I refuse to face it. I refuse to, I know, um, uh, I know that uh, the world is going to change around me and I don't want it to change. I can't stop it from changing. I realize I can't stop it from changing. So I'm just out, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's where he is. That, that becomes then this ultimate cause um, of his, uh, uh, of his destruction. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Nancy says, what does he mean, or not at all? Um, he wants things to be as they were, or not at all. Yeah, uh, it is an abrupt and disturbing turn of phrase. Um, uh, it is. That's essentially what he's choosing. Like, I choose annihilation, right? I would rather have nothing. I would rather go into nothingness. I would rather set everything around me on fire and burn with it than see it change. Yeah. If I can't have things as they were, then I will have not, is what he says in the published text, right? Um, yeah. Tony, I don't get the younger line thing. I don't understand that at all. I'm, I was kind of wondering if I'm missing something here. An upstart of the younger line. Isildur was never the younger line. I don't, I don't understand the reference there. I mean, of course, is it possible that Tolkien has decided to change that? That's exactly the kind of thing that Tolkien might do, right? Uh, but I, I think Isildur's always been explicitly older, hasn't he? Is it just me? I don't know. It's a research project. Somebody research that for next time. But uh, uh, and anyway, yeah, no, I was a little... Uh, Tony, I wasn't sure what to do with that either. Um, okay, let's keep going. Gandalf demands the re- release of Faramir, and when Denethor attempts to slay him, he shall not live to bow down. Gandalf strikes the sword from his hand and lets suddenly be seen his power so that even Denethor quails. Gandalf bids the men lift up Faramir and bear him from the chamber. This, is, I believe, is not uh, Tolkien's outline, but Christopher's summary of the full text of the version when he's, when he's writing it out. Denethor says, At least so far my rule still holds that I may determine my own death. 
He sets fire to the wood, which is oil-drenched. Then he leaps onto the stone bed. He breaks the wand of his stewardship and lays the pieces in his lap and lies down, taking the stone between his hands. Then Gandalf leaves him. He closes the door and flames roar within. They hear Denethor give a great cry and then no more. So passes the stewardship of Gondor, said Gandalf. It is said that ever after, if anyone looked in that stone, unless he had great strength of will, he saw two old hands withering in flames. Added. Gandalf bids Berethil and household men not to mourn or be too downcast. Each side has tried to do their duty. Don't mourn, right? Yeah. Uh, the late unlamented steward. Um, uh, okay. Um, oh, no, James, I'm wrong about that. That's, that's, uh, that's Tolkien's outline. Okay, thanks. I, I, I was misremembering there. Um, okay, great. Um, Nancy points out Gandalf still doesn't feel bad about Denethor, right? Yeah. Okay, guys, don't cry over that loser, right? Whatever. Let's get Faramir to help. Um, yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, so, what do we see here? We get the the burning of the Palantir, right? And the, the sort of the marking of the Palantir. Um, the way in which Denethor's final choice right of immol- of self immolation like the, the 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 stone becoming useless and reflecting only the flames in his hands right the the, the old hands withering in flame um you know his death his choice is well literally reflected right in the palantir um uh, which is which is very interesting, Stephen. Yeah, it, the image of two old hands withering in flame is very haunting. I agree. Um, uh, yeah, he shall not live to bow down. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, a very clear articulation of that that choice that Denethor has made. Um, notice the when as we get more details here, we can see those details. You know, they, they point in the same direction that we've been looking at, right? That that this the core of this story here, that final rejection. Um, he's lost everything personally uh, with his you know emotional shattering at Faramir's mortal wounding. Um, he has lost everything else now, right? In seeing Aragorn coming and knowing that. Uh, win or lose it doesn't matter right if they lose he loses everything if they win he loses everything uh and so he will have nothing um you know that central story of the the you know what drives him to to destroy himself here uh and the kinds of choices that he's making we see notice how that gets pushed along in some of the details added right the fact that he breaks the staff of the stewardship the fact that the palantir of Minas Tirith itself uh, sort of continually reflects his self-destructive choice uh, all of those things Um, uh, again to point uh, to continue to underline that story that we've been uh, sort of tracing this new development of here Um, the other two sort of minor details that are interesting here um Barathil, the Barathil figure, at first he does it all himself, right? He personally saves Faramir without any help from Gandalf at all, right? Uh, then now he's not the one saving Faramir anymore, right? And it's Gandalf who uh, uh, comes in and and 
demands the release of Faramir and then saves him, right? Uh, uh, wields his authority and wields his power in order to do that. Barathil, as if to be compensated for the loss of that role, uh, is given a more valiant solo stand at the door, uh, right? To fend off the entire household by himself. Uh, so depriving him of the guard under his authority is, uh, uh, is, is, a compensation, I think, to him. It gives him a more heroic stand. Um, and uh, and notice Gandalf is immediately like, okay, bygones, guys, right? Um, everybody tried to do their duty here. Like, you know, this will all come out, come out in the wash later on. Um, interesting that Gandalf's impulse is to kind of smooth everything over and sweep everything under the rug, right? Um, uh, yeah. Let me explain why I find that interesting. The reason I find that interesting is that Baragon's story in the published text, right, and Gandalf's comment on it in the published te- text about uh, loyalties divided and things like that, people being put into that position, that kind of position, where you've got a loyal, faithful guy who is put in a situation where if he obeys the explicit will of his lord, uh, then, like, some horrible thing will happen. But if he goes to try to avert the horrible thing, he can only do that by breaking a vow and, like, and damning himself for that reason. And so, you know, he... This is a very Germanic, heroic trend. Like, this kind of thing happens all the time, right? Whether it's... As like a, you know, a, a soldier or thane or guard like that, or whether it's a woman, right, who is married into an opposing clan, and then they start fighting again, and now she's got to choose between loyalty to her husband and loyalty to her brother, or you know, like the, those kinds of conflicts of loyalty um, are at the heart of a large percentage of stories in the Germanic heroic tradition, um, and so it's interesting to me that it's almost like. Tolkien did that accidentally, right? Or almost accidentally in the sense that, or at least his initial impulse was not to play it up, but to downplay it, right? It's like, so you each try to do your own duty. Let's not, let's not worry about it or think about it too much. Um, whereas like, no, like Barathil Baragond is in, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's in this classic heroic position, right? And so in the published text, a little bit more is made of it. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of, self-sacrificial heroism that is sacrificial of his own honor uh, and likely his life uh, in order to do the right thing. Um, you know, that's... Uh, um, that's... It gets, it, it, it gets a little bit... It sort of brought a little bit more into the center. But this is why, knowing what a big thing this is and how Tolkien would have been well aware that this was a really big thing, Interesting to me to see that his first impulse is to downplay it rather than upplay it. Uh, I would even have expected it if I had, you know, if if I had guessed before ever reading the history of Middle Earth, you know, if I thought that element of the story was bigger and downplayed as he revised, or smaller and upplayed as he revised, I certainly would have guessed the former and been wrong. Okay, let's keep going. They now bear Faramir to the house of the sick. As Gandalf and Pippin climb back up the road, they hear the last shriek in the air of the Nazgul. Gandalf stands still a moment. Some evil has befallen, he says, which but for the madness of Denethor I could have averted. So far is the reach of the enemy. But we know how his will had entry to the White Tower. By the stone. 
Though he could not daunt Denethor or enslave him, he could fill him with despair, mistrust, and unwisdom. That's a cool word. When Faramir is placed under care with Berethil as guard, they meet the funeral cortege. Where is Mary? Pippin volunteers to try and find Mary. Okay. So, Gandalf concludes, upon hearing the last shriek in the air of the Nazgul, Gandalf concludes, I see the role that the Palantir played in this, right? So what is the role of the Palantir? It's not just the instrument by which he finds out that Aragorn's coming, knows that uh, the Gondor that he's... Denethor I'm talking about, of course, knows that the Denethor... Denethor, The Minas Tirith that he's known, the Gondor that he's known, is gone for good, uh, and so chooses to destroy himself rather than see it pass away one way or the other. Um, It's not just that, Right? Uh, Now we have, this is the first introduction of the idea that the corrupting will of Sauron was at work using the Palantir of Minas Tirith as its instrument. So what, how did it do? He could not daunt Denethor or enslave him. Remember the significance of the word daunt. That's been a really important word throughout the development of books, uh, well, books especially, books four and five, right? Um... So, uh, if he, so, to daunt Denethor means to impose his will on him, right? Enslaving is one step further down the road, but only one short step. To be daunted uh, means not just to be kind of generally intimidated, right? But it's fairly clear from the way we've seen him use the word daunt. It means to assert your will over somebody else, um, to bring somebody forcibly to comply with your will. You've not enslaved them yet, Right? But it's only one short step shy of enslavement, which you'll remember is why it was such a big deal when Frodo daunted Gollum uh, back in book four. Okay, anyway, <clears throat> so he can't do that. So Denethor has not been daunted or enslaved. This is not the mere assertion of Sauron's will over his. So what happened, Gandalf? Gandalf says... Denethor was filled by Sauron. Sauron filled Denethor with despair, mistrust, and unwisdom. Okay. Um, How exactly did that happen, right? That is, what exactly are the mechanisms of that? We don't know. Um, Like, He was made mistrustful. His wisdom is turned to unwisdom. His hope to despair. We don't know how, right? We don't know anything other than by looking in the stone, his will, it's very vague, right? His will was sort of affected by it. I mean, uh, I can't help but picture the Lord of the Rings online mechanism here, like the, uh, <clears throat> the hope and despair mechanism, the hope and dread mechanism, rather in the Lord of the Rings online, you know, that uh, uh, Denethor looks into the Palantir and, like, you know, his wisdom decreases, you know, and uh, uh, his hope is drained uh, and his morale goes down. Um, I mean, this, it's, it's, it's almost kind of that vague, you know, that he was just influenced directly. His outlook was directly influenced. Now, he's not daunted, not enslaved, um, but he is corrupted in this way um so we're starting to get there but i this is still not uh 
in other words, Gandalf says, Sauron drove him to the conclusions that he came to, right? Um, when Denethor decided that a fiery death was better than either victory or defeat in this battle, which ultimately is kind of one way to look at what he decided, right? When when Gandalf is implying that when Denethor decided that, he was not completely driving the bus, right? He's not enslaved. He's not daunted. But the emotional, spiritual factors that led to his conclusion, that led to his decision, um, were not, didn't come from him. They came from Sauron in some way, right? Um, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, basic music, this is live. Yeah, just so you know. Um, uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can post them there and I'll get them. Um, so, okay. We're, this moves us one step closer to the final story, but we're still not there, right? Um, still, the, 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 the way in which, you know, how is Denethor brought to despair? How is his mistrust emphasized? Um, how is his wisdom changed to unwisdom? Uh, or his wisdom manipulated into unwisdom? That is still not present. Um, He calls for you, said Gandalf, but you cannot come to him save in one way. You must go out to the battle of your city, putting, this is of course a later draft, uh, go out to the battle of your city, putting away despair and risking death in the field, and he must struggle for life against hope in the dark ways of his fever. Then perchance you may meet again. And then he changed this too. For unless you go out to the battle of your city, putting away despair and risking death in the field, you will never speak again with him in the waking world. He will not wake again, said Denethor. His house is crumbling. Let us die together. At least we can go to death side by side. Again, changing. At least we can go to death side by side, said Denethor. That lies not in the will of the lord of this city or any other, said Gandalf. For you are not yet dead. And so do the heathen kings under the dominion of the dark lord to slay themselves in pride and despair or to slay their kin for the easing of their own death. Okay. Um... Gandalf very explicit. Um, uh, Gandalf is very explicit with what his ult like. There is a good outcome, right? Denethor has a good choice, but he has only one good choice. There is one good choice that he still has the power to make. He could put away despair and risk death in the field. Um, go out to battle, where you may die, and. By the way, I would guess, and this, of course, talk about speculation on speculation, had Denethor done that, I bet he would have died, right? But like Boromir, he would have died well. Uh, there, That's what I think the parallel is here that Gandalf is suggesting. Boromir fell, but Boromir repented. And the death that, he, that Boromir died shows his repentance, right? Um... And I continue to believe that this is what Aragorn means when he says, you have conquered, right? Um, few have won such a victory, James, exactly. Denethor is not among those few, James, right? Uh, Denethor has that same choice, and he would be making a very similar choice. Um, turn back from despair. Turn back from pride. 
Turn back from your rejection of the good that is coming to you and the deliverance that is coming to your city because it's not the deliverance that you want, right? Because it comes at a cost to you that you are going to have to diminish and the one that comes after you is going to have to increase, right? Accept your role, your John the Baptist-like role. Go out into the battle. And yes, you might lose your head also like John the Baptist, but uh, that's okay, Right. You would in doing so, even if that happened, then you would die well. Um, So it's not even interestingly. Right. It's not even a choice between life and death. Exactly. It's not like stop choosing death, choose life. Um, That's not it's it's kind of like that, but it's um, it's it's not quite that simple. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, So. I, I really love that. I, 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 uh, I think that this is one of the th- those things that gets toned down as he revised. We can even already see it kind of toning down in the revisions here. Um, and it's still there in the published text, but it's toned down such that uh, it never... In the published text, the parallel with Boromir never really jumped at me, Right. Um, basically, that that Gandalf is challenging him to die as well as Boromir died, um, and I'm not saying that Gandalf is saying go find some way to die. Right? I'm not saying he's condemning him to death. Maybe he would live. Maybe he wouldn't die. Um, but he needs to go and you know uh, risk death in the same way that 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 uh, Boromir went uh, and risked death. You know, not regarding his life and not seeking his own good. Um, yeah, so uh, again, I love to see how this story is refining itself. Um, for you are not yet dead, right? See, it's not, uh, he's not, um, he's not just telling him to die differently, right? Uh, but he's also not, again, he's also just not telling him to turn his back on death entirely. Um, yes, your job is to face death, to be willing to face death. Um, yeah. Um, so do the heathen kings under the dominion of the Dark Lord to slay themselves in pride and despair, or to slay their kin for the easing of their own death. Um and that's Gandalf's sickest burn yet, right? This started, right? This Denethor's madness comes to a crisis at his shattering guilt over Faramir's wounding and apparent moral condition, right? Um, he believes that it's his fault that Faramir is dying. And for Gandalf to say, look at what you're doing, right? You are killing Faramir like one of these heathen kings under the dominion of the Dark Lord in order to ease your own death, right? Because um, you're giving up on life, but you're not just giving up on life. You're, make, you're, you're, you're taking life away from your son, too, just to kind of make it easier for yourself to get, have company to go along with you, right? Uh, you're, 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 you're leaving everything behind. You're setting fire to your world uh, and leaving it behind, but you, you want... To go with company, you know, you want your son and you to go out together. Um, 
why because you don't dare to go off on your own right so i mean it's it's uh that's that's gotta hurt uh a lot um that's a a really deadly jab by by gandalf there back to his uh revised version of the palantir and its role Alas, but now I perceive how it was that his will was able to enter among us into the very heart of the city. By the way, that last passage seemed to be the, it was the stone, right? The underlined, it was the stone. Um, Seems to be like the moment when Tolkien is discovering that, right? And uh, here now we have him refining it. Long have I guessed that here in the White Tower or at Orthanc, one of the great stones of sight was preserved, or both as it turns out. Denethor did not, in the days of his wisdom, ever presume to use it or to challenge Sauron, knowing the limits of his own powers. But in his grief for Faramir, distraught by the hopeless peril of his city, he must have dared to do this, to look in the stone. He hoped, maybe, to see if help was drawing nigh. But the ways of the Rohirrim in the north were hidden, and he saw at first only what was preparing in the south. And then slowly his eye was drawn east to see what it was willed that he should see. And this vision struck out, true or false, of the great might of Mordor, fed the despair that was already in his heart until it arose and engulfed his mind. Okay, so now we're not just getting the I looked in the Palantir and some, like, misty force of evilness spread into his mind and reduced his wisdom and, you know, increased his despair. You know, it's nothing like so vague anymore. Now we have... Um, a clearer articulation of the mechanism by which uh, Sauron manipulated him. Um, And, uh, okay, so now keep in mind, as Christopher points out, in this early version, notice that the story is he had never looked into the Palantir until that day, right? Um, he had never looked into the Palantir until uh, when he goes up into his high tower. When when Faramir is brought in, he goes up into his high tower and he comes down and Pippin says that he looks changed, he looks aged, right? He looks, uh, uh, you know, he looks drained. Um, that's the first time he ever looked in the Palantir. And that's the moment when this despair descends into him. Um, okay, so we have the concept. So we're we're... We're on the doorstep of what I was calling that final layer of the madness of Denethor, right? That is, the Palantir being used as an instrument now, him being manipulated in this really interesting and indirect fashion, rather than him just being kind of, you know, Sauron putting the, like, despair whammy on him through the, you know, through the, the medium of the, uh, of the, the Palantir. Um, so... He, Denethor, look in the, looks to the north, sees no Rohirrim. Looks to the south, he saw only what was preparing in the south. So he looks to the south and I think still sees Aragorn. Right? Still knows that it's Aragorn in the ships? Probably. Um... I think it's around this point. I don't remember exactly where. I'm, I'm forgetting. You guys can remind me if you remember more clearly. Um, Tolkien is starting to waver on the question of whether or not Denethor knows that Aragorn's in the ships, right? Uh, because it seems like that's possible here. 
because the thing which is that what finally drove Denethor over the edge in those earlier versions we were reading was um, uh, was the king coming, right? This fact that win or lose, Denethor was screwed, right? Win or lose, Denethor's Gondor was gone, so what's the point, right? That was the that was the the final um, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, right, for Denethor earlier on. Now it seems to be simply despair. We're gonna lose, right? There's no way that we can win. Simple despair, in a simpler kind of way, right? Um, the Rohirrim aren't coming. So two out of the three things that he looks, he looks north, he looks south, he looks east, right? North, we're going to lose because the Rohirrim aren't coming. East, we're going to lose because the armies are are coming in, right? The armies of the east, I mean, like he's barely even started. Uh, you know, we're, we're hosed south. Does he see Aragorn and does he not see Aragorn? Um, it would fit most perfectly um, with uh, um, it would fit most perfectly with the other two if he does think that the ships coming up from the south are the Corsairs of Umbar, right? If he looks to the north, no Rohirrim, looks to the south, Corsairs coming, looks to the east, more armies, conclusion, it doesn't matter. We're going to lose, right? Now, interestingly, that is an oversimplification of of the situation. That's a that's a less complex reason for despair than he had before, right? Um, yeah, Arthur says it's interesting that he doesn't look west like a good Numenorean. Yeah, I agree. It is interesting, Arthur, isn't it? That uh, looking into the west is the only direction that he doesn't look, right? Uh, that uh, that's uh, that's really kind of nice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, yes. Um, no, Evan, I don't think... No. Um, there's no reference to... Uh, our, Evan was asking if uh, in the Council of Elrond we got yet the business, the bit about Denethor preferring, you know, uh, Saruman to Gandalf. Um, no, definitely not. Because the last time... The Council of Elrond was ages ago. Uh, and back in the Council of Elrond, Gondor was still Ondor, and or the Land of Ond, and uh, we knew almost nothing about it. I mean, it was still, uh, still the story of, you know, those darn Gondorians who kicked the Dúnedain out, and Aragorn's still bitter about it. Um, you know, that's what we had last time we were there. So yeah, no, Denethor wasn't uh, wasn't didn't exist. Um, uh, Saruman wasn't <clears throat> wasn't even clearly a traitor yet, so no, it was it was uh, no, he was he was getting there, but still, no, that Gandalf didn't do didn't have a research trip to Minas Tirith, uh, none of that, none of that stuff happened. Um, yes, Jennifer, I think that the ways of the Rohirrim are hidden just because they're passing through the the sheltered, you know, in the they're, they're being guided by the woeses on the hid on the secret trails, which Denethor's he's looking at the road, understandably, right. The road, to, the road to uh, to Rohan, and there's there's no army on it, right? Because they're taking ways he doesn't expect. Um, 
Brian, I agree that it does seem to lessen Denethor's character here to have him overwhelmed uh, simply by his own despair. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I th- now, and the role of Sa- but the role of Sauron, I like the fact that the role of Sauron is being taken to, sort of taken back to another level again. He's not just laying the whammy on on Denethor here. Uh, he's beginning to man- manipulate him. He. Uh, Sauron shows him what it was willed that he should see. Um, and this vision of the great might of Mordor fed the despair that was already in his heart. Um, Stephen says, so Han Bori Khan is responsible for Denethor's despair. Oh man, that's a, that's a lot to put on poor Khan, but uh, I guess so, indirectly. Okay. Um, Pippin on the Walls. Yet so it was that Pippin, with the far-sighted eyes of his people, was the first to descry the coming of the fleet. Look, look, Berethil, he cried. The Lord was not all demented. <laughs> Isn't the Gandalf school of Denethor treatment? He saw something in truth. There are ships on the river. Yes, said Berethil, but not such as he spoke of. I know the something of those ships and their sails. They come from Umbar and the havens of the Corsairs. Hark! And all about them men were crying in dismay, The Corsairs of Umbar! You may say what you like, and so may they, said Pippin, But this I will say for my lord who is dead, I will believe him. Here comes Aragorn. Though how and why in this way I cannot guess. Here comes the heir of Elendil, he shouted. But no no one, not even Barathil, took any heed of his small voice. Um, so... Uh, First of all, it's kind of lovely. You know, Pippin tells us about this scene, but we never get, you know, to, to see it described is really fun. Uh, so that by itself is, is, is like enough for this scene to be really wonderful. Um, but my favorite moment here is that final, this I will say for my Lord who is dead, I will believe him, right? So Denethor has declared Aragorn is coming. The sh- Aragorn is in the ships. So Pippin is having faith, not in Aragorn, but in Denethor, right? Um, again, he's not, uh, <laughs> the Lord was not all demented, not hugely flattering, but um, um, but nevertheless, I think it's, it's really interesting uh, and really cool that for Pippin, the thing that led to Denethor's despair and suicide is the thing that Pippin says, I will hold on to that and hope. And here's Pippin hoping when everyone around him is despairing. With good reason, right? They're believing their eyes and and, uh, uh, and drawing the obvious logical conclusion from what they see, which is a very negative conclusion. Again, not that there's anything wrong in a sense with what they're doing, but Pippin says, I don't care if you say these are Corsair ships and I can't understand how it happened. But Denethor said it's Aragorn, and I'm going to go with that, right? I'm going to believe him. Um, so that is, I think, really, really interesting uh, that Pippin, in this moment, becomes the instrument of transforming the very core of Denethor's despair into hope. And that's a really, really neat touch that I, that I, that I really, really enjoy. Later on. Uh, this is uh, Gandalf. Another scene that didn't happen in the published text: Gandalf's meeting with Legolas and Gimli. Did you ride with the Rohirrim? Said Gandalf. 
Nay, indeed, said Legolas. A strange journey we have had with Aragorn by the paths of the dead, and we came here at the last in ships taken from our foes. Not often has one the chance to bring news to you, Gandalf. Not often, said Gandalf heavily, but my cares are many in these days, and my heart is sad. I am growing weary at last, Glowin, son, as this great matter draws to the final edge of its doom. Alas, alas, how our enemy contrives evil out of our good. For the lord of the city slew himself in despair, seeing the black fleet approach. For the coming of the fleet and the sword of Elendil secured the victory, but gave the last stroke of despair to the lord of the city. But come, I must still labor. Tell me, where is Aragorn? Is he in these tents? Nay, he has gone up into the city, said Legolas, cloaked in grey and secretly. Then I must go, said Gandalf. Okay, um, so... Uh, yeah, it does kind of sound, doesn't it, Jennifer, that he's suggesting that Legolas is, is glowing sun. Uh, um, yeah, it's a, that transition is a little bit strange, isn't it? Uh, but uh, unbelievable. Legolas and Gimli turn out to be brothers separated at birth, right? Wow, what a revelation here at the end of the story. Anyway, um, so here I th- it seems to me pretty clear that Tolkien has now shifted, having just uh, uh, given, you know, you know, in the previous slide we were looking at Pippin taking, you know, holding on to Denethor's words about the fact that it's Aragorn in the ships. Now Aragorn, or Denethor seems not to know. Um, uh, this is where, you know, I, I had uh, the Witch King dying with the full Macduff earlier on. Now we have Denethor dying with the full Aegeus, um, uh, seeing and misinterpreting the Black Sails. Uh, believing it to be, you know, sort of believing his eyes that it's uh, that it's the bad sign and not knowing that it was really, in fact, the good sign. Um, uh, yeah, so... Anyway, um, the final implications... So these final pieces haven't yet been put together, at least not that Christopher has shown us. That is, we have the... Uh, the, the element of Sauron manipulating Den- what Denethor sees through the Palantir in order to lead him to his own conclusions. And then we have, um, uh, we have him, Denethor, believing that the ships coming up are, in fact, full of Corsairs of Umbar. Uh, instead, you know, not realizing that the thing that he takes is the final evidence uh, of his defeat and of Gandalf's folly is in fact the eucatastrophe that he does not yet perceive. Um, that fine. So that 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 what I've been calling that last uh, uh, full layer of of richness and depth to the madness of Denethor is finally is almost it's not quite fully there. It's not it hasn't fully come together yet, but it is fine. He is finally uh, laying that in. Okay. All right, I'm going to stop there. That's pretty good. We didn't quite get to the Houses of the Healing, but the Houses of the Healing, stuff I have about the Houses of the Healing is fairly... So that, that that's the miscellany that I didn't quite get to, but that was not bad. We'll roll that into next time. Um, uh, next time we're going to focus primarily on the last debate, the chapter on the last debate. We get a very, very short uh, chapter from Christopher about the Black Gate opening, and then another chapter about the maps. I don't know how much I'm going to have to say about the maps. I've been uh, traditionally saying rather little about the map chapters uh, in um, uh, in the history of Middle-earth so far. Uh, really liked the map chapters back in the Silmarillion material. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit less into them here. Uh, but anyway, we'll still, we'll still read those, but I don't know how much we'll talk about it. 
But in any case, we are still on pace. Next week, we're finishing the book. We'll be done with The War of the Ring by Mythmoot. Only a matter of hours before I arrive at Mythmoot, but nevertheless, there it is. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me, and I will see you guys next week for our last class session on The War of the Ring. Good night, everybody.